Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Renewables. I'm your host, David Smart, Chief Commercial Officer at Biostar Renewables, and I am excited to have Milt Stark with me today. He is a nuclear expert and really a renewable energy expert across the, the board, and it's been great to get to know you, Milt. You're, you have a lot of really interesting insights and a lot of knowledge to share. Milt is a speaker, author, and consultant. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, really nice to be here. Now, you told me that you're more focused on the writing, being an author, and a speaker these days. Tell me why that is. Well, why that is is because I'm an old dude, and I really don't want to put out a full-time effort on running a business, so on and so forth. Um, I have a very lengthy career. I've retired four different times. Uh, doesn't work. I can't stand not being occupied, not being involved, not doing work of some kind. And I've spent a good part of my career teaching uh, in industry, both for technical aspects of training and uh, the soft skills for management, supervisory skills, so on and so forth. Um, I think What's driving me to continue a career, to want to move on with something, is the years of experience that I have combined with where we are headed today as a world and as a country with our renewables, with our energy, with energy policy. I think we're missing the boat in a number of areas. I think there are a number of questions that we should be asking and answering that aren't being asked in the general view. Uh, and I kind of see my role in the, the remaining few years that I might have to be able to do this stuff, I see my role as maybe a catalyst to get involved in some of those discussions. Uh, you made reference to me as an expert in the nuclear industry and stuff. And I actually do not consider myself to be an expert at anything. However, I have an extremely broad base of knowledge in power of all sorts. Uh, I started into the power industry uh, as a generator operator in the Army in my teens, uh, was a long time ago. <laughs> and I've Thank pretty you much service. been in the commercial industry since 77 when I separated from the military. Uh, I've seen a lot of a lot of change and growth and aspect and problems. Um, I've seen a lot. And like I said, I think there are a lot of questions that we need to be asking that is establishing our, our policies, where we're going, what we're doing. Uh, a quick example, uh, I, I don't really want to drive that direction on this conversation, but we have upwards of two gigawatt of standing solar and wind power in the United States that's just standing. It's just there. 
We can't connect it to the grid. We have major problems with the grid in the United States. They have, there are major problems with grid, with the distribution of power. The distribution of power is far more consequential as a problem than the generation of power. Getting it from where we make it to where we use it is a much more significant issue than just generating the power. There's a, a concept that seems to be general in the populace, not within the industry, but with the populace, the people I, I talk to in the, in the mall or in the grocery store, you know, places I go that I just meet people and we talk about this. There's a general concept that electricity is at the wall. And I really don't need to worry much more beyond that, but just it's at the wall. And that we have all of these safe and easy ways to create electricity, such as solar and wind and geothermal and uh, hydro and nuclear. We have all of these ways of, of generating that electricity. And they think it, it's just a question of you take the wires from whatever generating system you have and stick it into this magical power line grid out there and the power comes out on the other end, whatever you want, whatever you need. And that is a far, far stretch from what actually has to happen. The, the power that is generated from, from wind power and from, um, Solar, in some cases, that that is generated from geothermal, it's not compatible with what we have on the grid. It's generated in different form, format, so on and so forth. So it has to go through a conversion process to get it onto the grid at all. And then once it gets on the grid, just because there's a wire that goes from point A to point B, doesn't mean that wire can transmit the amount of power that we need to have across that line. So one of the immediate issues we have with solar and with wind in the United States is that where we have good wind and solar generation capability, we don't have the system to get that power into our distribution system that has to be constructed, that has to be built. And and all of the conversion processes that go with each one of those have to take place as well. So am I saying we can't do this? Absolutely not. I'm saying there are a lot of technical issues that people aren't aware of. And again, I don't think everybody out there should be an expert on putting together the grid and how you convert uh, solar power into commercial power, how you transmit it, whether you use AC, DC. I don't think that the general population should have all of the answers to that. But I do think the general population should understand that our problem is not so simple as to stop pulling oil out of the ground and start using electricity. It's not that simple. It's a much, much more complicated issue than that. And it's that conversation that I really would like to be participatory in getting that conversation in place. And I can do that, I think, through a number of things. I have, I have the background to talk technically about many of those issues 
involved with the grid, with the conversion, with the different kinds of power. I can speak to that technically, but there's a lot of other engineering and technical people within the industry who know as much or more than I do about those issues. Sure. It's so that's you concept. said a lot there. You said a lot there. There's a lot okay. to unpack. I want to unpack it. But let me back up just for a minute and, and okay. set the table for us a little bit. You've worked in a lot of interesting places. I want to just talk about your background for a minute. Um, you have been a consultant on the Fukushima nuclear disaster response, something that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, you told me that you worked on the Andrew J. Weber barge in the Panama Canal. Um, you mentioned Three Mile Island. Talk a little bit about some of your experience and your background and career. Um, and then okay. we'll come back to how you open the show, which is exactly what I really want to dig into, you know, which is, well, what is the real issue we're trying to solve and how do we solve it? But first set the table for our listeners and viewers about your background and some of your experience. Okay. Um, I, I got into power. I started out my great plan and my ambition and my desire was to be an actor. I was a theater arts major in college. I laid out of school a quarter because I ran out of money in 1968. As you might be aware, in 1968, we had this little thing going on they called Vietnam. It turns out that laying out of school a quarter not only takes you off of the college deferment list, it moves you to the top of the selection list. Hmm. So I, I dropped out of the spring quarter of college got a job, went to work, got married, had a scholarship to go to college at Northwestern Missouri State, a theater arts scholarship. Everything was looking really, really good, really great. And I got drafted, reported for the draft on August 6th, 1968. So I'm going into the service with a new wife and a stepson. I'm 20 years old and I get in and the military wants to either send me to the officer candidate school or to the infantry NCO school, neither of which I wanted part of because I wasn't ready to accept the responsibility of 20 to 120 souls under my command and my watch. So having been drafted, I had the option of enlisting. I enlisted for a guaranteed school and the school that was available was the Powerman School at the Engineer Training Center for Belvoir, Virginia. Hmm. That's where I went. So I went through school there. I graduated from one, got selected for the next level, got selected for the next level. Long story short, in January of 1969, I reported to Vietnam as a Powerman where another Powerman and I built set up and operated for a year the emergency power system for the Vietnamese, for the United States Army's logistics system in Vietnam. We set up mm. the emergency power system for the computer systems that ran all of the, of the logistics in Vietnam. I went from there back to the engineer training center, teaching power generation, which is what I had been working on. I applied for and got accepted into the Army Nuclear Power Program, re-enlisted for six years there, and spent the next six years in the Army Nuclear Power Program. About 
Well, it was 16 months of school for that. And after graduation, <laughs> I actually graduated on a Thursday. They gave us Friday off. And Monday morning, I was teaching a class in the instrumentation section for the nuclear power school. So I, I went from training electricity to learning about nuclear power electricity and going right back to teaching electricity in a different environment, a different section of the school there. Uh, while I was there, I got stationed on the Andrew, or while I was in the Army there, I got stationed on the Andrew J. Weber, which was a 27 and a half megawatt, uh, two gas turbines, three diesel units that was used primarily for peaking power in the Panama Canal Zone. And uh, that was my first significant introduction to the grid and how it actually works, because I was an operator providing power into the Panamanian grid. And I said, it's just, it's gone on from there. Uh, I separated from the Army in 1977, went to work for a nuclear services company, which was actually started by eight friends of mine who were in the service. They had retired, got out, started this company. When I separated, I went like again, Friday to Monday from being in the army to working in the commercial industry for nuclear power. And coming out of the army nuclear power program, we were a relatively small group. And to be completely honest, there was nothing comparable to the training that we received for commercial nuclear operations in general, other than the nuclear Navy, which is a little bit, the nuclear Navy, of course, those reactors are set up for propulsion versus uh, power production, but there's, there's a lot of similarities and a huge number of the operators that exist in industry today still come out of the nuclear Navy. They separate from the Navy and go right into the nuclear power operator training and, and become operators there. So, but, but we came, when we came out of school, we came out with qualifications in radiation protection, as well as whatever our specialty was. Mine was instrumentation in that resulted in a lot of unique situations for us. One of my early projects, like I said, I got out in 77. So I, I was working just primarily doing outage work, mostly electrical or instrumentation, uh, some radiation protection work, but it was just mostly just technical work in the field, working in these plants, so on. In March of 1979, Number a date that may be infamous for some folks, we had a little bit of a problem at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. I had been on an outage at Three Mile three weeks prior to the accident, working in Unit 1, doing modifications to the control rod drive systems in Unit 1. My badge my access code, everything was still active at Three Mile Island. So when the accident happened at Three Mile Island, the company that I worked for at the time, that little company is called Nuclear Support Services. They had a contract with Metropolitan Edison to provide radiation protection and maintenance people. That's why I had been there. So they called us 
like the accident happened and three hours later, their VP was on the phone with our VP saying, we need people as fast as you can get them here, you know, because we had qualified people. So I had gone to a job in Nebraska. I get a phone call saying, turn over to your second, get on an airplane, get back here. You're going to Three Mile Island. So I went to Three Mile Island, uh, was assigned as a radiation protection supervisor on the night shift. I came into work. The VP met me at the door, said, go home, go back to bed, come back in in the morning, in the morning and report to this guy. You are now the liaison officer between the radiation protection department and the newly formed waste management organization. So I left. Okay. There was no such thing as waste management in the nuclear industry at the time. So I came back. The following morning, I met this guy who had been a construction manager for the utility. They moved him over to, to take this waste disposal group. He was one of the best construction people I ever met. He didn't know which end of an ion went where. He knew nothing at all about radiation, let alone anything at all about disposal, about the rules and requirements that went with the the disposal of materials and so on and so forth. So I was the liaison. I was supposed to be his knowledge base for all of that. Long story short, in a matter of about two and a half weeks, when the organization consisted of he and I, they moved him to become the site manager of the recovery at Three Mile Island Unit 2. And I became the waste disposal manager for Three Mile Island. And in that function, I was responsible for building the organization, for establishing the methods and processes and so on, for handling, shipping, disposing all radioactive materials off of Three Mile Island. And I was responsible for the construction of the high-level waste facility or the high-level storage facility, which is the first one that was ever built. And it was built there at Three Mile Island on site to house the material that we were gonna to have to take out of the core at three months. So that kind of started my career of being first time one of a kind activities. I was relatively successful there. Things have moved on and over the years, I've done multiple jobs that were, like I said, either one of a kind or the first of a kind activity in that simply means that <laughs> I've been described as highly egotistical, aggressive, uh, argumentative. But if you want to get something done, he's probably your guy. So that's well, I've never of, found you to be that way, Milt, but we haven't known each other for that long. So uh, I guess we'll <laughs> see if uh, I still believe that's true here in another 15 or 20 minutes. Thank okay. you very much for sharing that. It's super interesting. I think Three Mile Island is one of, you know, a few um, disasters, accidents that we can look back on in history and and I think shapes people's really opinion about nuclear. And I'm, I'm curious your opinion on nuclear. And um, I, I think you could probably help us debunk some of the kind of myths around nuclear 
Um, should, should nuclear energy be a bigger part of our energy mix here in America and across the world for that matter? It should have been our primary source of energy around the world for the last 35 or 40 years. Uh, the perception that came about, and it is, it is perception. When you start looking at actual numbers, nuclear power is literally the safest of the methodologies of generating power, including solar and wind. Um, solar and wind, there's, their issues are just the physical hazards of construction that go on. And it's, sure. it's almost continuous. If you think, uh, you know, you think about wind towers, you put this wind tower up and, and it's done. So the tower comes essentially manufactured. You build a platform, you stand the tower, you bring big cranes in, you put the head on, you put the propeller on it, you start the thing turning, then you go away. Well, of course, that's not true because what's inside of that big head up there is a power station with equipment and oil and pumps in, you know, it's, it's a small industrial complex on the top up there and it requires maintenance. And so you've got maintenance people that have to go up that tower uh, over a thousand feet in, in many cases. And it's a, it's a hazardous work environment when they have to work on the front end up around the bearings and stuff they had to go they have to go outside of the housing out to the, the propeller hub or to the, the turbine hub. Uh, it, it's a physically hazardous area. And we have a, what I consider to be a less than stellar safety record in the wind area. We've had, we've had a number of deaths in the United States and worldwide just associated with the physical aspect of working on those plants. So, but there's never been a death from a light water reactor in the commercial industry that is relatable to nuclear power or radiation. The deaths that we do have in the industry have been Fukushima. Uh, they had a death at Fukushima. It was a 57 or 58 year old fireman had a heart attack. He was the death that's attributed to Fukushima. Really? The only death? I'm sorry? The only death? Yeah. The only death was an old fireman had a heart attack. Wow. Okay. You, when you hear Fukushima, the public perception of Fukushima is the thousands of people that were impacted by the Fukushima. Well, they weren't impacted by the power plant. They were impacted by the tsunami, which is what caused the problem at the power plant. Okay. So. Same thing at Three Mile Island. You know, Three Mile Island happened in 1979. So we've got a lot of years to accumulate information. And the big scream that was going on at the time around Three Mile Island was that everybody that lived within five miles of the plant was going to die of cancer. In fact, if you go back to not nuclear power, not our records, go back to the medical records, so on and so forth, there is no significant deviation of, radio, of cancer around Three Mile Island from the time of the accident to the present time. There is no significant deviation at all. So there's nothing, that, there is no cancer 
occurrence, let alone cancer death, that could actually be associated with Three Mile Island. That's but if you just talk about the general populace, the conversation, it caused all kinds of cancer. Right. So why haven't we, why hasn't nuclear been, is it a, a more dominant factor? Is it just the not in my backyard? Is it the cost uh, to build these plants? Why do you think that we haven't given nuclear the attention you said that it should have received in the past 30 to 40 years? Well, I think it's the arrogance of the government and the industry in that I was a kid, I was born in 1947. So I grew up with that hide under your desk mentality of nuclear power, you know, we have a nuclear war, atomic war, right? Which is, which is why, you know, we started out having atomic bombs and, and then around the 1950s, all of a sudden, nobody used the term atomic anymore. We always talked about nuclear. Well, that was part of Eisenhower's transition to nuclear for the safe. They just said, oh, we're not going to do atomic anymore. That's bombs. Nuclear is not a bomb. That was their, their mentality, okay? But there has never been a push by anyone, including the industry, to educate the population in general about radiation, about nuclear power, how it works. There's, if you were to take a fuel rod out of a nuclear power plant and stand it up in a field, you can't run fast enough to touch that rod before it kills you. But you could drive past it a mile away every day for the rest of your life till you're 90 years old and never know it was there. And I'm talking about just standing out in the air. Okay. So we have the concept that this radiation is all pervasive. It, it just, it is horrifically dangerous. So is gasoline. Okay. But if there's a gasoline fire a hundred yards away, you're not really concerned about that gasoline fire because the heat, the, the, the effort stuff doesn't come to you. Okay. Same thing is true with, with radiation. The radiation is significant and it does damage within the range that it works. But those high levels of radiation that we're talking about, they disperse very quickly and they're very, <laughs> I'm sorry, I kind of make a, a little side jump here. I just read an article about, again, going back to Fukushima and they're talking about doing a tritium release out of Fukushima. And everybody is just screaming. They're, they're going crazy about, we're gonna release radioactive material out of Fukushima into the ocean. Well, what we're releasing into the ocean is tritium. Tritium is water. The reason that we release tritium is you can't separate tritium from the water because it is water. Tritium is H3O instead of H2O. Okay. So if you take 
a atom of tritium. It's radioactive. And it, by being radioactive, it means that the H3O combination is unstable and it is going to, it is going to decay to something else. And by decay, it means it's going to spit out some energy. And when it spits out that energy, it's going to transition to something else. Okay, well, maybe it just transitions to H2O. I'm not sure without going back to the chart to see what the decay chain actually is. But I do know that tritium decays by beta. Beta is an electron being ejected out of the system. Okay, It's not a high energy beta. So I have one atom of tritium. It's radioactive. And that means it's unstable. So at some point in its lifetime, it is going to emit a beta particle. When it emits a beta particle, it's going to become something else. It will no longer be tritium and it will no longer be radioactive. So it actually is radioactive because it has the potential to eject an electron. But it only ejects the electron once. So if you have a billion atoms that you're going to put into the ocean, each one of those billion atoms can release one beta particle one time before it becomes something else that's stable. Okay. A billion atoms. If you dump a billion atoms of tritium into the Pacific Ocean, come back two hours later, you can't find one. We're talking about trillion upon trillion upon trillion upon trillion upon trillion of atoms that that one little tritium atom is floating around in. And it's only going to activate once. So this huge fear we have of releasing tritium is kind of unwarranted in itself. And tritium is a normal byproduct of the nuclear process. Every power plant that exists out there releases tritium on a normal basis all the time. Nobody finds it. Nobody, I mean, it's, just, it's just part of the process. It's not doing anything. It's not causing any problems. Nobody knows about it. The only reason that everybody's screaming about this tritium release is it's associated with the Fukushima accident. Interesting. So I want to sh shift gears a little bit and kind of get back to where, where you were going in the beginning of the episode. You know, talk about, I guess, your vision for the future, and uh, which is, of course, informed by a lot of experience uh, in power generation. But you say that we're approaching this renewable transition using a fool's methodology. Explain <laughs> what you mean. The, I think the little thing I sent you said that our, our transition to renewable energy sources is not a fool's errand. It's something that we probably should be doing, but we don't want to approach it like a fool. And the approach that we seem to be taking, and again, I, I want to emphasize this is not the approach that industry is taking or industry is pushing. 
It's the approach that the general populace had. The, the big stop oil movement that's going on, I guess Japan is a big place where that's on right now, but several places around the country where we're having protests and they say, just stop oil, okay? And that seems to be the general idea is just stop doing what we're doing that's bad and only do what's good. The problem with that is we survive as a society on the product of that energy. Our entire society is based on energy consumption. All the way back to the caveman, the first step that the caveman did to come out of the cave was guess what? Burn wood, right? Energy, energy. Everything we do as a society is based on how we consume and use energy. A massive amount of that in every aspect of our life currently comes from oil. We cannot just stop oil. If you just stop oil right now, stop using petroleum. Remember what happened at the beginning of the, the, the COVID pandemic, the stores were empty and it took a while to get them filled up again. You can't fill them up now because there's no source to fill them up with. The, the crops are in the field rotting because there's no way to harvest them, to get them out of that, okay? Our society, as we know our society, will cease to exist, period, without the consumption of energy. So in order for our society to move on, let alone bring the millions and millions of people who are not yet living at that level in, in India and, and Africa and so on, the people who don't yet have those resources for that energy. I mean, if we just stop all of this, we're talking about the rest of us going back to where they are, okay? We cannot do that. So that's a fool's errand to, to say, well, let's just stop everything and do this. We can't do that. Milton, how long do you think it will be until we don't need petroleum or oil uh, as a society? A lot more than 50 years. A lot more than 50 years. And there are aspects of technology, and this is part of the things I think we should be asking, the questions we should be asking. Okay? Just a simple thing. And again, this is not an answer. I don't have answers. I don't have answers. I just have questions. Okay, but if you go online right now, you can read about uh, CCR, right? Carbon capture removal. So they've got, the, they've got these big systems out there that are going to suck carbon out of the air, then inject the carbon dioxide into the earth. Okay, so my simple question is, We've already gotten to the point with fossil fuels, oil and coal, where we already extract almost all of the solids. We're extracting and recycling uh, materials out of those solids coming from coal. 
So we're getting down to the only thing that we're releasing anymore are the gaseous contaminants of which one is, of course, CO2. So if we've got the capability to pull CO2 out of the air and inject it, why don't we take the CO2 out of the effluent out of the power plant and inject that? It's going to cost about the same to take it out of the air versus take, well, actually, in my mind, at least, it should cost less because there's a concentration of CO2 in the effluent. So it's much easier to capture together, right? And, and sequester that carbon. And now the energy that we're using becomes either at or near zero. It's a net zero. Even though we're burning the fuel, we're utilizing that fuel, we're getting the benefit out of that. Why aren't we looking at doing some of those? And the immediate answer that comes from industry is it's too expensive. But I'm saying it's not too expensive if the standard that you use is sucking CO2 out of the air and putting it in the ground. Okay, so we have hundreds of thousands of really, really, really smart people. All of them looking at solutions for the problem, all within their own sphere. How do I fix my problem? And I don't think that we're asking questions at a broad level of how do we synergize all of these activities and come up with a workable plan. And I'm sorry I brought that word into it because no one, no government, no group, no one that I've found yet in any of my reading, research, so on and so forth, has an actual plan to move forward. Everybody has an idea, but everybody's idea is based on somebody else doing something that is not beneficial to them. Yep. Yep. There's no a lot one. of goals. There's a lot of goals. There's a lot less plans to achieve those goals. I, I certainly agree with that. You know, from a renewables and a generation standpoint, you talked about, you know, the importance of transmission and delivery versus generation. We're in the solar business. Uh, we help commercial and industrial companies adopt on-site generation uh, because of the size of our projects, typically kind of two to 10 megawatts. We aren't dealing as badly with some of the, um, you know, interconnection clog, if you will, across the country, which is becoming a bigger problem every day in every market. Uh, but it is a problem. Talk a little bit about, I, th I think, you know, our listeners and viewers, uh, probably 50, 60% of them are in the industry or some related industry, and maybe the other roughly half of them aren't, but are just interested in the topics we cover on the podcast. Okay. Talk about some of the pitfalls of wind and solar uh, in particular, and talk about grid synchronization. Explain what that means to our, to our listeners and viewers okay. and why it's important. Okay, um, something people probably don't really think about. Um, I Actually, nobody using electricity out there ever thinks about it. But if you look at a sine wave of power production, AC power, which is what we normally utilize, and there's a whole conversation about why and how we use AC in the world versus DC. The AC is 
on a sine wave. So it goes from zero through a positive peak, back down to zero, through a negative peak and back to zero. So that's one full cycle, okay? Every generator out there that makes electricity makes electricity on that cycle basis. And each individual generator, you can control the frequency or the length of that waveform, and you can control the amplitude of that waveform. But we have to have a specific amplitude in our usage out in the world. So a manufacturer or a developer, a producer of electrical power has to be able to produce power that comes out in that range of the, the one. And these are nominal voltages, right? But it's, it's 120, 240, 480, you know, those multiples of power that we actually use out in the world, they have to happen, which means that at some point to put it on the grid, every place that is on the grid, that waveform is in synchronous with that waveform every place. So I'm sitting here in Texas right now. If I could plug into, plug an oscope into the wall here, and, and see the waveform that's coming off of that in the Texas grid might be separate. So I'm in San Antonio and I've got a buddy that lives up by Austin. So I can have him do the same thing in Austin. If we compared those two waveforms, they're identical. They're on the same time frame. That's called synchronized. They're together, right? They have to be together. Well, that synchronization, that waveform actually comes about from a physical, the physical process of generation of electricity. That waveform is a linear view of what power is generated from spinning a magnet inside of a coil. It's a physical relationship. So spinning that magnet, taking the power off of that comes out in that waveform. So what you have to do if you have multiple spinning generators, and this is called synchronous, every power plant when they come onto the grid, I have a measuring system that shows me the waveform of the grid and shows me the waveform of my production system. So as an operator, I look at the power grid waveform and then I adjust my generation until my frequency is just a little bit faster and my voltage is just a little bit higher. And I mean, just a little bit. So they're, they're like the, you can see the two lines over the top of each other if you were looking at it on OSCO. Now they're synchronized. So I close the breaker and now they're connected together. Okay. From now on, my little generator is locked into the grid. It must follow what the grid does. Okay, now in order for that to happen, the grid has to be big and powerful, which means that you have to have something out there big and powerful to drive. And we do that with what we call baseload power, which are nuclear power plants, some of the big hydros, the big coal plants. Those plants come up, they hook up together, they synchronize and they drive the frequency and voltage of the grid everybody else that comes onto that system 
follows that. So I attach. Now, once I've attached my power plant to that system, if I try to change the voltage, the voltage won't change because I can't drive the entire grid. What changes is the amount of current that I generate out of my generator. And that, that's a whole different issue about the current thing that comes in. If I want to increase the load on my generator, I apply more power. I turn the gas up, right? If you're driving your car and you want to go up a hill, you need more power. If you want to maintain the same speed, what do you have to do in your car? You have to step on the gas. You have to give it more power so it can climb that slope. Electricity is the same way. You have to give it more power in order for it to assume that load. Okay. The big thing with solar and wind is I can't change the power. Solar and wind power is injected into the system. I take the power that I generate and I run it through a conversion process and I artificially form my synchronized connection and then I attach it to the grid. But on a solar plant, the sun controls my throttle, not me. I can't turn the sun up and down. I can't give it more power. The sun does that. So the load that's on your grid out there is determined by the people using power, whatever they turn on, whatever they turn off. The grid does not have storage capacity, period. Whatever is used on the system must be generated on the system. So if I have a solar plant set up on the south side of town, and the, it's a cloudy day and the clouds are rolling by and that solar plant is going up and down and up and down and up and down with the power that it's generating, that's being forced onto the grid. I have to have a system over here someplace that I can put on a governor like a natural gas plant that the gas can be changed up and down to offset what the plant does. So when the solar energy is injected more, the gas plant has to back off and inject less. They have to match with each other, okay? So that's just one of a bunch of intricacies that involve with the grid and how power gets put out there that we cannot, right now, we do not have the technical capability to use 100% solar on any power grid in the United States. Won't work. We can't run it. Will the further development of energy storage and batteries, is that a, a feasible solution and a, I guess a, a scalable, feasible solution for the long term, for the future? Within our technology today, it is the only, it is the only feasible. The storage technology. Now that takes us into a whole new thing about storage technology. Um, you can have pump water station, pump hydro. That's a storage facility. They, I've seen uh, mechanical plants where they just take massive weights on a motor, a motor gen. So when we're generating too much electricity, the motor lifts the weight. And then when we let the, 
When we need the, need the power, we let the weight come down and now the motor jet becomes a generator and puts it out. So that's a method of storage. So there's lots and lots of ways that we can store this energy and utilize it. What we're not taking into account when we do this is the massive amount of efficiency that's lost in those systems. Okay. There's, there's no efficiency gain like in a, in a hydro, a pump storage station. It takes more energy to run the system than the energy that we get out of the system. So if I have a pump storage system that's capable of giving me 100 kilowatts, it takes 130 kilowatts to get the water up to the top so I can make 100 kilowatts. Okay, so it stores energy, but it has an efficiency loss. Every storage system has an efficiency loss. That, I don't care what it is, it's a, it's a consideration of physics. You can't get out more than you put in. You always have to put in more than you get out. Yep. So Makes sense. there's a loss of efficiency. So I know you said you've got questions, but not necessarily answers. But I want yes. an answer. What should yeah. we be doing? What is the right path forward as, as you look at the landscape today? What do you think we should be doing? Today, we should stop all of this screaming and hollering about stop oil, so on and so forth. And we should be concentrating our effort. We've already got the ability to produce power. We know that. We've had it for some time. Okay. We need to be concentrating our effort on not getting rid of the fossil fuel systems that we're using, but transitioning them to a near net zero or net, net zero if possible, but as near to net zero as we can. In other words, reduce that. We can't afford to give up the power that all of these fossil systems are putting out. But maybe we can afford what we need to do to those systems. We already have ash systems, uh, flu bag systems that are taking virtually all the particulates out. So what we're left with now in most of the, and not all the fossil plants have them. Part of what we're running into is, is it costs money to put those systems onto a coal plant. The coal plants, you know, 40 years old and the utilities going, I can't afford that. Okay, well, we're coming up with money to build solar systems that we can't attach to anything, but we don't have money to clean up the existing stuff that we got going. That's a question. Why not? Okay, so we're already spending way more money than what we should be spending, and we're spending it foolishly. Fair enough. Okay, let me ask you this question. We talk a lot of, in our business about distributed generation. Yes. And, um, major, you know, for, major, 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 major. Good it, thing. Is the... And for our listeners and viewers, when I say that, I mean, you know, you, you generate the power, you, pretend, you hopefully store the power on site and you have your own little microgrid, right? And, and you're not yes. 100, at least not 100% reliant on the grid, the big grid. Is the future, in your opinion, more distributed or do we have to keep making massive investment into the grid and, and is a centralized grid 
the way forward? I think that it is just like I said with the power, we need to utilize all of the resources we have. I don't see a big central grid going away, but I think the utilization of microgrids and self-generating power is something we should really be looking at. Right now, we seem to have a concentration, and, and it probably has its place. They have uh, in uh, Morocco, they're building a solar station that covers 57 square miles with solar panels, okay? Now, that 57 square miles that now has solar panels all over it used to be part of a 350 square mile patch of ground with two or three lizards living in it. So it sounds like a pretty good utilization. The problem is they're building power, they're making power that's going to da, 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 England. So they're wanting to build an HVDC distribution system that goes under the ocean from Morocco all the way to England. And it's, it's going, it's, it's gonna happen, okay? But there are a lot of problems with it. It's very expensive, but that's a good utilization. That's kind of a macro grid approach. But as I said, we cannot, England can't produce all of their power using solar. We still have to have these spinning generators. Now, is it possible down the road that we're gonna come up with different technology? Absolutely, okay? But it's possible they're gonna come up with technology that's gonna allow me to live a thousand years. It's not in my lifetime, right? So we have to deal with what we have to deal with today. The distributed power, the microgrids, I think they are hugely effective. I'm not sure. My question would be in how we size them. Because most of what I see for microgrids, they're still based on the primary idea of emergency power production and minimized isolation if we lose power from the grid. I think that we should be looking at microsystems for 100% and consider them as having some backup power for the grid if the grid has problems. So, but I don't see the grid itself, if we have to build the capacity of the grid big enough to take care of you, the plant where you put your microsystem, if it normally runs off of the grid, then I have to have the grid and all of the power resources and stuff available to run that all the time. Right. Okay. Very interesting. I think, I think the effective use of the microgrid is to take them off of the primary grid as a normal source of operation and only sure. use the primary grid actually kind of the other way around so that our microsystems become a source for support of the grid versus the grid becoming a source for the microsystem. Sure. I I think I agree with you. And there's certainly uh, perhaps less investment that would need to be made 
if we could sort of de-stress the grid by installing, uh, at least in, in certain places, microgrids and um, and more distributed power with storage capabilities. This has been really, really interesting, Mill. You and I could probably talk for hours. We're coming up on an hour here. I want to close out with, uh, I want to plug you a little bit. You're writing a book. And um, I'm really interested in it. I think our listeners and viewers might be interested in it as well. Tell us, what is the sixth W? I won't. (laughs) You got to buy the book to find out what the sixth W is. Actually, I will. (laughs) When you were in high school, maybe even going back to grade school, you had a teacher that said, when you write a paper, there are the five W's, right? You remember the five W's. What, when, where, who, and how. I mean, why? Those are the five W's. The sixth W is a little W that we tend not to look at until it's too late. And that's the little W on the back end of how. We're building plans, and it kind of comes back to what I was just talking about. And and my thing is, it's the, the sixth W of project management. So it's specifically in the area of project management that I'm looking at. But the problem that I'm seeing is that we're not asking and answering the how question early enough in the process for project management. And I've got some very specific ideas on how and when that should take place and so on. And that's kind of what my book is about. The philosophy of why we need to know how earlier instead of just what. You know, what what we're doing right now for project management as a general rule is say, I want to build this. I've got this much money. I've got this much time. Give it to Joe to start a project. No. So we've had who's going to do it? When are they going to do it? Why are they going to do it? What are they going to do? That's all been answered. So we've answered the five W's. But we don't know how. And in some cases, actually in way too many cases, the how doesn't exist. So your project to install this solution turns out to be a research project to develop a methodology to fix the solution that never existed in the first place. We need to know the how first. And that's that's kind of what this all... So the sixth W is the little W in how. You gave me some statistics when we spoke last about efficiency uh, in construction in today's world. Do you remember it's, what we talked yeah. about with respect to timeline and, and cost overruns? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and actually I went back just out of curiosity and, and someone else I was talking to uh, project management breaks down into, let's say really gross two general categories of project management style. It's waterfall and agile. Agile is typically used for software development, waterfall typically used for construction, but everybody out there is trying to do this, to hybridize these two systems. And there's some value in that. There is some definite value in that. But if you take all of them, 30% of the projects started worldwide, and it might be, you know, 27.9% 27.9% or 31.2. These are round numbers. Roughly, 
30% of the projects that are started worldwide are absolute failures, budget loss, none of the objectives completed. 30% absolute failures. On the other end of that, approximately 30% are successful. They complete their objectives, they're on time, they're on budget. All of those in between are less than successful, i.e. they might have completed, and in many cases they would have completed their objectives, but they're massively over budget, they're massively over scheduled, so on and so forth. So the thing that I'm really concentrating on are those two at the end. Less than 30% of the projects taken on worldwide are successful to the extent that they complete the project on time under budget, 30%, okay? That means I have a 70% failure rate. I can't even get out of junior high school with a 70% failure rate. <laughs> That's really interesting. I look forward to the book. When can our listeners and viewers uh, find the book? Do you have a, speaking of deadlines and timelines, when will it be out? <laughs> on time and under budget? I'm targeting publishing the book in the first quarter of next year. Excellent. Well, congratulations. And, uh, I look forward to staying in touch until then and absolutely look forward to reading your book. You know, in our world, we're in the renewable energy development space and it's all about being on time and under budget. And some are, some aren't, uh, but that's that's kind of the key to the game. You, you've got to um, figure out the how, as you said, and, um, you know, you can have a really great project that can turn into a really not great project um, by, you know, letting budget slip and, and letting timeline slip. So, yeah. uh, Milt, this has been a great conversation. It's been really great to get to know you a little bit. I hope we can stay in touch. Uh, thank I you for too. everything you're doing to, you know, further educate the public on some of these topics that we discussed today. I think uh, that you agree with me that education is so key. People need to have a better understanding of what's the real problem and, and how do we come up with solutions. So really appreciate your time today. Um, as soon as your book is published, maybe we'll have to bring you on for another episode to dive cool. into that a little bit deeper next year. Okay. Everybody, to our listeners and viewers, thank you. You're the reason that uh, this podcast has continued into its fourth season. We have a lot of great episodes coming out after this, so please make sure to click that follow button wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm David Smart, Chief Commercial Officer at Biostar Renewables, and this has been another episode of Renewables. Thanks, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America.